Good morning. We continue today in our sermon series called Rebuilding in the Book of Nehemiah. And I know what some of you are thinking. Seriously? Considering all of the turmoil our country has been through in the past couple of weeks, you're going to talk about rebuilding of walls 2,500 years ago? Have you been paying attention? It's been crazy. Our, our nation seems more divided than it's ever been. In the last couple of weeks, uh, people, both black and white, have been senselessly and needlessly killed. Our cities have experienced violence night after night of looting and burning. And you're going to talk about the walls of Jerusalem. Really? Seriously? Now, if you think that we as believers in the church ought to acknowledge what's going on and think about it and wrestle with it and address it, you would be exactly right. But if you think Nehemiah can't contribute to that, you are wrong. So stick with me here, all right? Uh, last Sunday, uh, Sam Yider talked about how Nehemiah dealt with adversaries on the outside. But you know what? The enemy isn't always on the outside. Sometimes the enemy is on the inside of the walls. Sometimes the enemy is a lot closer than that even. Sometimes the enemy is us. And so we're going to see how Nehemiah deals with adversaries on the inside. And those adversaries are Jewish people who are mistreating. They are carrying out injustice against their own people. And that is leading to an outcry against injustice and a demand for change. Sound familiar? We in our country right now currently are painfully experiencing the reality that injustice leads to disunity. It leads to division. And that's our first point for today. Injustice causes division. Injustice, of course, didn't start with slavery in the United States. It goes back a lot further than that. So we're going to take a look at what was happening in Jerusalem almost 3,000 years ago. Verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Now the New Living Translation translates it this way. They raised a cry of protest. So what was this outcry against justice about? What were they protesting? They were protesting... Um, a, a crushing series of injustices that were being perpetrated against them by their own countrymen. So here they are. It's quite a litany, quite a list of injustices that they are complaining to Nehemiah about. Verse 2. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Uh, we'll see in the next verse that there was a famine, that there was a shortage of food, and some people who had the means were buying it up, and either they were hoarding it or they were selling it at a great profit, inflation, kind of price gouging. And these families were saying, hey, we, we can't afford to feed our own families. We're starving here. This is not right. Well, there, there are reasons for what's happening. It, it gets worse as we go on. Verse 3, others were saying, 
We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So how some people were dealing with this is they were um, selling the land. Well, the, the land was the source of their livelihood. But the, in order to stay alive, in order to eat, they were selling their vineyards, they were selling their orchards, they were selling their fields, but they were losing then a source of income uh, in the future because they were just trying to stay alive today. Well, if that weren't bad enough, um, <clears throat> they have to pay taxes. Verse 4. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Throughout history, oppressive rulers have been notorious for milking the common man in order to subsidize a luxurious lifestyle. I think of one particularly obnoxious example of this in the Central African Republic. Back in the late 70s, there was a guy named Bokasa who um, named himself the emperor of the Central African Republic. But you know, that's one of the poorest countries in the world. And just his crown and his gold throne and his long train made with ermine, you really need that in the Central African Republic? I mean, obnoxious uh, abuse of power just inflating the poverty there greatly. Fortunately, that didn't last very long. But we have these kinds of rulers even today. You think of North uh, Korea and Kim Jong-un and the family there that is uh, allowing the rest of the country to live in poverty while they live with great wealth. But what was really adding insult to injury in the case in Jerusalem is that it wasn't just the king, the Persian king, the foreigners who were doing it to them. What was adding to it, what was piling it on, was their own countrymen. Because their own countrymen were lending them money at exorbitant interest rates, which they just could not pay back. And so they felt, they felt it deeply that their own countrymen were profiting from their pain and their misery. But that's not all. It gets even worse. Verse 5. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs... Yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So what happens here is sometimes when you take a loan, you got to put up collateral. And in, in uh, the ancient Near East there, it was, it was typical to sometimes put up family members as collateral. And when you can't pay back the loan, then you have to, to give up your son or your daughter into slavery. And this was happening so, so what, what's the whole picture here? You, you have some Jews who are loaning money to fellow Jews to help them survive the famine, but th th they're charging exorbitant interest rates, which their fellow Jews can't be back, and as a result, they're having to give their sons and daughters to them as slaves, their countrymen, and sometimes they're being sold uh, as slaves. Th this is the injustice. Well, you can imagine why this is causing disunity and division among the people, right? And of course, Nehemiah recognizes that there are a lot of implications. One is that if this disunity and this division continues, it's going to put a screeching halt to completing the building of the wall. It, it takes teamwork and unity to do what they're doing, and, and this injustice is about to just uh, level it. But even worse than that, remember what the whole idea of the book is about. Nehemiah has a dream for his people rediscovering their identity and recovering their purpose, and that's to be a display people for God in the world to reflect who he is, and this problem certainly doesn't help them do that, and so he's going to need to address it. <sighs> Unfortunately, 
we don't have to uh, try very hard to look for application of what's going on in our times and in our world. We've heard a lot over the last couple of weeks about uh, systemic racism or racial injustice in our culture. And people talk about that in different kinds of ways. Some people talk about white privilege. Others talk about judicial unfairness. Still, other people point to policing practices which disproportionately target minority groups and are overly harsh. And the list goes on and on, and we've all heard about it this week a lot. And it's true that we may be insulated from some of this because we live in rural Indiana. But in spite of that, we can't live in denial. We should not live in denial that hundreds of thousands of people experience these things in very real and tangible ways all of the time. And we can't just turn a blind eye to that and ignore it. Well, again, unfortunately, um, systemic racism is not the only injustice that's taking place around us if we're willing to, to look around. There is exploitation and abuse of other minorities and of immigrants. We still have gender inequality. There's a gender wage gap that, uh, gender wage gap that causes frustration and anger and tension and conflict. But what we see really most, if, if we come kind of right down to our context, Kaskaskia County, maybe the injustice that we are most aware of or that we see most commonly around us is kind of an economic injustice where the, the haves and the have-nots, the gap between them just continues to grow. You know, we live in one of the wealthiest counties in all of Indiana, and yet all around us we see generational poverty, that is, families that are stuck in dependence upon the state. And maybe even worse than that, we, we look around and we see relational poverty. And relational poverty is where uh, people don't have the support relationships to help them move out of generational poverty. Uh, if, and if they do have a support system, it keeps them held in generational poverty. Um, I'll never forget uh, Bill Foley, who uh, started All Things New, what kind of propelled him to beginning this meth rehab house was when uh, a young woman said to him, I don't know anyone who doesn't do meth. And he was shocked by that kind of relational poverty that she didn't have any kinds of, of connections which would help her to uh, rise above that. And so he said, well, we've got, we got to create relationships uh, with, with the church uh, to, to enrich relationships to help people to come out of that. That's not it, though. Maybe the greatest injustice of all uh, is abortion. And so we have this long list of injustices, and what are we supposed to do with all of that? You know, because it doesn't touch me individually or doesn't affect my life, obviously, or because I can distance myself from um, most or all of it, that doesn't mean we can just turn a blind eye to it. Nehemiah certainly doesn't. Let's look at how Nehemiah dealt with the injustices in his situation. I started off this sermon series a couple weeks ago saying that Nehemiah was motivated by holy discontent at what was happening in Jerusalem. And so that motivated him to go do something about it. But now it gets ratcheted up a notch because not only is Nehemiah discontent, he has holy discontentment, it, it's now righteous anger. All right? He is angry. Look at verse uh, 6. 
when I heard their outcry and these charges, all right, these charges of injustice, I was very angry. All right. Earlier in the book, Sanballat, who was one of the uh, governors of the area, was very angry that the Jews were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now it's Nehemiah's turn to be very angry. He is very angry about the way Jews are treating and mistreating uh, their fellow Jews. And so he wants to do something about it. He knows that it is creating disunity, it's creating division, and it makes him mad. It is okay to be angry, to be mad, to be infuriated, to be frustrated, to be heartbroken by all that is going on in our country and by the injustices that we can't ignore. Tony Dungy wrote this about the death of George Floyd. Yes, there should be protests. There should be protests. A little later, he writes, but we do not have license to commit criminal acts when we're angry. Nehemiah was angry, but he channeled that anger into thoughtful action. Look at verse 7. I pondered them. He thought about, he considered, he mulled over these accusations of injustice in my mind. Here's the lesson for us. Think before you post. A lot of what is being batted around on social media is just painting with way too broad of a brush. It's not thoughtful. And we as believers, as followers of Christ, as Christians, we have to do the work to think Christianly. And so what we need to do first is listen. Listen. Listen to various people. Listen and try to understand. Then think and, and yes, we need to engage, we need to join the conversation, but, but only after we've thought about it and allowed the Spirit and allowed the Word to begin to temper how we feel and think about it so that what we say actually expresses how God is and how God thinks. It expresses His mercy, His grace, His compassion, the fact that He is a God of justice because He is just, all justice flows from Him. So think, so Nehemiah thought. He was angry, his righteous anger, you know, motivated him, uh, but to thoughtful action. Let's be thoughtful in our actions. Secondly, Nehemiah's righteous anger motivated him to courageously challenge the elite. He, he pondered these accusations in his mind, and then he accused the nobles and the officials. The leaders of the Jews were the ones that were perpetrating these injustices. And Nehemiah shows himself not to be a respecter of persons. He wasn't intimidated to, in, to confront the power brokers, the influencers, the ones who were uh, moving the narrative along, the ones uh, who were you know, politically correct, the in crowd, even his own kind, because he was a noble and an official, right? He wasn't afraid to confront injustice even among his own kind. And, and this is why we find out in a few moments that Nehemiah knows the book. He knows what God said. And he said, doesn't, right is right, wrong is wrong, doesn't matter who's doing it. I, I'm going to take the word of God and apply it, and it doesn't matter what people think about me. I think that's a great example for us. That's how we have to be. We have to, we have to know God's heart, know God's mind, and apply it in this situation, and sometimes that means confronting our own 
Sometimes that means confronting uh, the power brokers. <laughs> but you know what? In, in the end, we've got to reflect God's heart no matter what people think about us in the meantime. Thirdly, Nehemiah's righteous anger motivated him to courageously call it what it was, call it what it is, sin. We're still in verse 7. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. This goes directly against the Mosaic law. You just heard Mindy read from Leviticus, and it's not the only place that this is written. It's also in Deuteronomy. And this is what God says to his people through Moses. I'm just, here's the heart of it. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, hear the echo, we can't afford to buy food for ourselves, our families, our children. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. Okay, commercial loans, business loans, that's one thing. But don't lend money with interest to people who can't afford to pay it back. Don't do that. God says, that is wrong. It doesn't reflect my heart. You're not demonstrating compassion, grace, and mercy. You know, I can just hear Nehemiah, you know, quoting Leviticus there and saying, which part of that don't you understand? Okay, this is not rocket science. God says, don't charge interest to people who can't afford it. You're supposed to be generous and uh, kind in that area. I could, what, what if Nehemiah were here today and he had the whole New Testament to grab from as well? I can just imagine him grabbing something like this from 1 John. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You can kind of hear Nehemiah. Now, which part of that don't you understand? Okay, get it? You cannot treat a fellow human being with disrespect, with injustice, with arrogance and hate, and say that you love God because that math just doesn't work. If you love God, by the way, because he loved you first in Jesus Christ, then you will reflect his heart by loving others as he has loved you. But Nehemiah is not done calling it what it is. He's mad for a lot of reasons. Check out this next one. He's, he's mad because these guys are undermining exactly what Nehemiah is trying to do. We're still in verse 7. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them, and I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be bought back to, by us. He goes, what's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. I've raised money, I've given money so that we can redeem, so that we can buy back Jews, your brothers and sisters, out of bondage, out of slavery, and here you're selling them into slavery. That makes no sense whatsoever. What's wrong with this picture, folks? Nehemiah's a little worked up, okay, about the whole thing. I'm, tr I'm trying to do the work of redemption, which reflects God's heart, and you're doing the exact opposite, selling people into slavery. This has got to stop. It says there, they, um, <clears throat> they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. In other words, they knew that they were guilty. They knew that they were guilty. Nehemiah had caught them red-handing, undermining uh, the work that he had been called to do. But Nehemiah's not done yet. He's going to get it all out here. Uh, verse 9. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And here Nehemiah is getting back to the main idea of the book. 
Nehemiah says, listen, what you are doing is bringing shame to the name of God. But don't you remember who you're supposed to be, your identity and your purpose? You're to be a display people for God in the world. You're to bring fame and glory to the name of God. And yet, you're, you're not reflecting God's heart. You're not reflecting God's will. You're living in disobedience to him. You're not showing his mercy and grace so that the nations can see what a great God we serve. We, we, had, we watched a webinar this week, uh, some of us on the pastoral staff with Dr. Ware, who's a professor and pastor down in Indianapolis, and uh, he told a story about how he came to Christ decades and decades ago down in Indianapolis, and he began going as a fresh, brand-new believer uh, to an all-white church. He's an African-American, and uh, he wanted to get baptized in the church and become a member, but they looked in their laws, and they actually had a law against African-Americans becoming members of the church, and so they took a church vote, and they changed it. They got rid of it so that they could bring him in as a member of the church. Well, his best friend at that time was not a believer, and, he, and, and it was a white guy. And he, he went and told his friend about how this, you know, this church, what they had done, and the friend wasn't impressed at all that a church that, that claims to represent God in the world would ever have anything like that on the books, would ever show that kind of um, injustice and discrepancy, wasn't impressed at all. And, but we don't want... We can't be that. We want to reflect and demonstrate the truth of God's heart, his compassion, his mercy, his grace to the world. He's still not done. Nehemiah is kind of on a rant, right? He's venting here a little bit. Here's the last one. Um, verse 10. He's just kind of, man, this whole thing is completely unfair. He says this, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. Hey, I'm lending, I'm helping out by lending money and grain, and you're profiting from it. You're charging interest. It's not fair that I would lend at no interest and you would lend at interest. Come on, get with the program. Let's get on the same page. Let's be a team. Let's do this together. Let's reflect who God is and what he's like. We can do it. So I love that. Nehemiah, he lays it out. He calls it what it is. It is sin, and he's not afraid to do that. We need to do the same thing, but we need to start with a plank in our own eyes. You know, let's just be honest for a second. All of us struggle with some kind of bias and prejudice. Different kinds. Different kinds of biases and prejudices, but they all have the exact same root. Pride. That's the root of it all. We have pride in our education. We have pride in our employment. We have pride in our lifestyle. We have pride in our culture. We have pride. It goes on and on and on. And it's this pride that makes us think that we are better than others. And we, we need to examine our hearts first. If we're going to be, and I think we should be able to call sin what it is. But we've got to begin with our own hearts to make sure our own hearts are right and that we aren't being driven and dominated by pride in our own hearts. Next, Nehemiah's righteous anger motivated him to courageously provide solutions. All right, he's not just going to accuse. He's also going to provide some solutions. Now, these solutions are pretty uh, cut and dry, and they're costly. Verse 10, but let us stop charging interest. By the way, when he says us there, he's not confessing that he's been charging interest. He's saying, come on, people, let's work together as a team and let's not charge interest. Please, why don't you do it like I'm doing? Get, loaning people uh, money and food but not charging interest. Verse 11, 
Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. However you have profited from this situation, reverse it. Make it right. And it's going to cost you and it's going to hurt, but you do it. you got to do it. Be generous. Show God's heart. He gives the solution. Put the welfare of your brothers and sisters ahead of your profit margin, even if it hurts. Well, I want to thank you guys, by the way, because in a lot of ways you demonstrate this kind of generosity. I think one thing that marks this congregation, this church, is generosity as a church and as individuals. Do you know, do you know that uh, you all gave um, $30,000 to the CARE Fund in the last couple months? That's above and beyond budget, right? Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, we're still giving gas cards out, but we're doing it through Combined Community Services right now. Many of you have given meals to neighbors and encouraged them in lots of ways. Um, I, I know some of you who um, provide uh, opportunities for college students and others that t- to live and to work where, where you're not making a huge profit. You're just giving them a, a chance. And I appreciate that generosity so much. I go to, actually, I go to lunch regularly with a guy who tips four times the value of the meal. That's a 400% tip, right? My math is right. And he does that because it's just one way to help people out. So I, I thank you as a congregation for your generosity in all these kinds of things. But we got to be intentional about the solutions. Now, uh, just this week, the Caris Fellowship, that's the fellowship of churches that we're a part of, they put out a statement on this whole situation. We'll send it to you this week. But uh, they have a paragraph that gives some steps that they would like all of us to think about and to take. And this is kind of the, towards a solution. Maybe not the, not the, the end, but um, here it is. We commit ourselves to be part of the national self-assessment. In other words, we're going to evaluate our hearts and to pursue the actions now needed to bring about racial harmony, justice, and unity in our land. We call upon all who form the Caris Fellowship, that would be us, to pray for our nation. By the way, this whole passage ends with prayer. Its leaders and all who are part of our judicial system. We call upon our churches and leaders to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus, the true and sole source of racial harmony. We also call upon our entire Caris family to proactively engage in ethnically diverse dialogue, education, and interactions that will collectively move us towards God's desire for racial unity and harmony. Those are some concrete steps that we can take, and we need to think about it and think um, intentionally about what that looks like in our context. It's neat the way the people responded in Nehemiah in verse 12. Here's how they responded. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. They responded to those directives, to those solutions, and they did it. Next thing I want you to see is that Nehemiah's righteous anger motivated him to courageously hold people accountable in community. He brings them together. Look, we're in verse 12. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen. Say amen. Amen. 
I just wanted to hear that. That's good. And praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. So, see, what they were doing was creating disunity. It was tearing the community apart. And so the solution has to also be in community. It has to be done in community. They have to start a dialogue and work it out together and come to a solution, make promises, and be held accountable together in community. We need each other. This Dr. Ware that we were listening to the other day, he said, the church needs more PC. I'm like, what? That cannot be right. I didn't hear that right. He goes, yeah, they need more Peter and Cornelius. P- Peter and Cornelius, both, they, they had an encounter with God. They listened to God, and then they came together, a Jew and a Gentile, in humility, and they began talking. And, and that's what we need to be able to do. One of the directives there was to engage in ethnically diverse dialogue, education, and interactions. That, that needs, we need more PC, more Peter and Cornelius in our church, and to do that actively. Well, I'm not going to take time to read the rest of the chapter, but what I want you to know about the rest of the chapter, and you can read it at home, I encourage you to do it, is that this righteous anger uh, motivated Nehemiah to put his money where his mouth was. Nehemiah wasn't just virtue signaling. He wasn't just saying what the PC crowd, that kind of PC crowd expected, uh, and then, then go off and do whatever you want. Instead, he actually acted upon what he said. He was going to live what he preached. And so what he says is, hey, listen, while I've been governor, I had the right, I had the full right to demand taxes from you to um, put food on the table. But I didn't do that. I didn't take advantage of that right. I had the right to do it, but I knew that it would cost you. It would be oppressive on you. And so I paid for it out of my own pocket. It cost me, but I didn't want to burden you because I care about you. And so he demonstrated as a leader uh, what it looked like to show grace and mercy and compassion and understanding, even at a high cost. We need to dream a little bit, too. we got to dream about how we could do this. I mean, there's lots of ways we could do this. I mean, I think about it. You know, you know next door we have this building that is indestructible. The, the basement's like a bomb shelter, all right? That thing is solid concrete. And uh, what, what if we finished that whole thing out and really made it into a place where kids, you know, from different backgrounds in our country could come, play, have a blast, do whatever you want, and when they've sweated enough that they'll actually calm down for a few minutes, you share the gospel. You know, you teach them the truth. You know, what, what could we do? Um, I, uh, I just wonder, remember back in the uh, years ago, we had a good connection relationship and, and kind of exchange with an inner city church in Fort Wayne, and I wonder what kinds of relationships we could intentionally pursue in order to begin to have a meaningful, humble interaction and dialogue with people who aren't exactly like us. Can we dream about it? Well, before we jump too far into this, uh, just remember we can't do it in our own strength. We can't just do better. We, re- we really need to look to Jesus. Uh, early in Christ's ministry, he went to his hometown of Nazareth, and he went to the synagogue, and they handed him the scroll of Isaiah, and he opened it, and he looked to this passage. He read this aloud in the synagogue, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sat down and said this, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he pointed to himself as the one who would set people free, the one who would bring justice and freedom. 
We've got to start with Jesus. You know, we, we need to hold our officials, our government, our judicial system to justice. But you know that God's dealing with us. He, ch- he chose to show something better than justice to us. He gave us Jesus. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the justice That's what you deserve. Justice is what you deserve. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the justice that you and I deserve, which was eternal separation from God in hell. Jesus took that justice on himself, satisfying the demands of God's justice so that what God could justly show to you and me is mercy and grace. Aren't you glad? So we need to hold our officials to justice, but when it comes to interpersonal relationships, at the job, and in the neighborhood, in our community, we are called to reflect mercy and grace. That's what we're called to. That's what we need to think about and dream about and talk about is what does it look like to demonstrate mercy and grace because that is what we have received from God. And only as we have comprehended the wonder of the fact that God has given us mercy and grace, are we going to be able to fulfill what God wants for us? Which, again, he said clearly in the Old Testament in Micah. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, but check it out, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God and to walk humbly with others, even those who are not exactly like you. This passage ends with prayer, and that's where we're going to end today. The band's going to come on up here, and they are going to play and sing for us a song um, that was written actually several years ago. But when you see the lyrics to the verse, you're going to think it was written last week. And I'll tell you what that means. Either this, uh, the people who wrote the lyrics are eerily prophetic, or we have a problematic pattern in our country. But don't get stuck on those lyrics, which will will kind of bring out vivid images in your mind. Listen to the chorus, because the chorus is going to ask questions that I'll bet all of us have asked at one time or another when we've faced hard things or seen hard things. We all experience injustices in some kinds of ways. And in that moment, we've wondered, God, do you see this? Are you aware of this? Do you know what's going on? Does it break your heart? What are you going to do about it? And that's that's the heart of this song and this chorus. It's a lament song, and so just listen. Ponder the lyrics. What is the Holy Spirit doing in your heart as you think about this? Does your heart Does your heart break now?
Does your heart break now? We know the answers to those questions. Yes, God sees. And yes, God's heart breaks. And yes, God's going to do something about it, but he wants to do it through his people, the church. And so the real question is, do we see? Does our heart break? Are we open to God giving us eyes to see? Maybe we're blind sometimes. And so take a moment to pray that God would open our eyes and break our hearts to help us to know what he wants to do through us as a church and as individuals. Thank you. 
Broken heart is a place where the spirit can work. When our hearts are broken, the spirit can change it and work through us to bring glory to the name of Jesus. Would you stand with me? We recognize that it's not in our power, but it's in the power of the spirit. Let's close today by singing that chorus that we sang last week, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. sent, but you are sent into a broken world that breeds conflict. Will you take the peace of God in Christ and the gospel with you? I thank you for being here. Now I want to remind you that tonight we have a ministry matters meeting at six o'clock.